Ankur Nagpal, it is great to have you on the 15-Minute Founder. And we only have 15 minutes. That's the rule. All right. All right. You're, we're on the <laughs> so clock. Let's we're, go. We're going to jump in hot yeah, with some hard-hitting questions. Let's but what we're really going to try to do in this episode is unpack who you are in a short amount of time so someone can watch this Good luck. who you Good are. Good luck. Yeah. And where I want to start is I saw something you said recently, which was that first immigration guilt hits harder the older you and your parents get. And I know you are an immigrant, but what does that mean or what did you mean with that quote? And how did you end up in America? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the quote was first generation immigrant guilt hits harder because I moved here for college. Uh, It was always my parents' dream that, you know, I go ahead and study in America and all of that. And it made sense. I mean, I was able to start a company, build a life I could not have anywhere else. But it's sort of the ultimate trade-off my parents had to make, right? In order for me to have a better life, they had to like sacrifice seeing their son. And now we're, you know, my parents live a 14 hour flight away. And as a result, I'm not able to almost spend as much time with them. But yeah, this hit, I mean, they were just staying with me for six weeks. And as I was saying bye to them, I may not see them again for like four or five, six months. And that sort of guilt of like, wow, my parents sacrifice everything. So I have a better life. But in return, they don't get to spend as much time with me. It's kind of sad. And I think something you mentioned, my parents actually immigrated here when I was six years old. They're from India. Yep. I was born in England with my brothers, lost the accent, but moved here when I was six. And I think something you said, which is you moving here, maybe wasn't the reason why you were able to start a business, but it was a big portion why. And being in America allowed you to do that. Do you ever feel like you had to make a trade-off between going after career, going after business versus spending more time with your family? And would you say that America made it possible for you to start the business? I would say I undoubtedly could not have built what I have built in any other country. And that's why I'm so grateful to America. Sometimes I do criticize America. I'm like, oh, why is an immigration policy more open and all of that? But what underlines it is a sense of gratitude because I could not have done what I have done anywhere else. Growing up, or at least like building my business, I never thought about it. It's only frankly after selling my business and reflecting and seeing my parents get older that I'm like, huh, you know, like I do want to spend more time with them. And frankly, I have constructed my life in a way now where I can, I still end up seeing them, you know, four or five times a year, which is more than a lot of my friends who have parents much closer. You and might come off very humble about this, but you did the hardest thing for any person starting a business was not only to start the business, but you got to an exit and it was a nine figure exit, got to an exit. It's been described that starting a business is like chewing glass and you start to enjoy the taste of your own blood. And what you did was after this, when you probably could have done anything you wanted on earth, but you decided I'm going to chew glass and hopefully like the taste of my own blood again. I know that's a bit morbid, but yeah. why did you decide to, after reaching an exit with Teachable, decide to do out of everything yeah. you could do, get in the trenches and start Ocho, a new business yep. now? So there was a big time in between. By the time I like, you know, sold my company, stopped working there, I'm like, wow, I'm never going to do this again. Like, this is awful. Why would I ever do this again? Uh, and I had 18 months of like literally traveling the world. I was investing, which is when when I met you, running a fund, which to me was felt like a part-time job. Like do a few calls every day. You're, you know, surfing in the morning. I was living a great life for 18 months. But towards the end of that journey, I started to like, you know, nostalgia is such a powerful force that you like remember the good times. You, your brain sort of forgets all all the hard times, I started to really miss the feeling of building something with people that I cared about, right? Like I felt like every other aspect of my life was amazing. Like I was in the best shape of my life. I was sleeping great. Everything was awesome. But there was some part of me that missed like the act of building and not just the act of building, but building with a group of people. And that, you know, slowly, like by the end of the summer, I was back. I started thinking of have starting a company again. And I kept telling myself, that's crazy. That's crazy. Don't do it. Don't do it. And at the end, of the summer, I was supposed to go to Portugal to surf for a couple of weeks. And that was supposed to be the trip where I decided whether I really wanted to do it. When it came time to leave, I actually found that I was more interested in sitting behind my computer and building this business. And that's when I knew, you know what, I got to do it again. I've heard a saying, 
that first-time founders focus on product, second-time founders focus on distribution. But as a second-time or serial founder now, what is the biggest thing that you are doing differently after this, the, war, yep. the war wounds, this war stories, yeah. the scar tissue from the first experience? So the biggest scar tissue I have is like, honestly, running a company kind of sucks after 50 or 60 people. So right now, I'm just fighting as hard as possible to keep the company as small for as long as possible. So that's a big sort of change. And this time, I have a lot less ego involved. So if a time comes where I'm no longer enjoying what I'm doing or if the company's better served with an outside CEO I would step away the first time around you have so much ego attached you're like this is my company how can anyone else run it so that's one big lesson the other lesson is ironically I think I'm already always have been a distribution focused founder this time I'm actually spending much more time on product we've intentionally decided we're spending zero dollars on marketing I'm not like we're growing you know 15 20 25 percent month on month but the numbers are still pretty small but right now I'm like let's get our product really good and then double down on distribution so I've actually gone the other way but my inherent bias is look I've always been distribution focused like that's my background so it's a little different for me than a founder that you know never thinks about distribution. Why do companies, or why did at least you find that the experience with over fifty or sixty people sucked, or why why did it get worse at that point? It's totally possible, like. I was a bad leader or a bad CEO and therefore it sucked versus it being an inevitable fact that it has to. But for me, what I found is I started to spend, like I, I started a company because I couldn't really have a job. Like it's just, you know, having a corporate job wasn't for me. And at that size, it started to feel like a job. Like, you know, I started to spend all my time in meetings. And um, one of the things that's most exciting about running a business is you have an idea on Monday, you can do it on Tuesday or Wednesday. But at that point, everything grinded to a halt where you want to do something cool. Now let's have a meeting to figure out how to do the thing. And I'm spending all my time now convincing people to do the thing that has to be done. And again, it's totally possible. It's my mistake. Like I didn't set the company up correctly or didn't have the right people, but it definitely became a lot less fun after, I don't know, I don't know whether it's 50 or 60 or 70, somewhere in that range. And when you say you're a naturally distribution focused founder, and you also said spending $0 on marketing, what are you doing for marketing then? How are you, are you acquiring customers? And what do you think, especially spending some time as an investor, what does it mean? or what do you see when someone is more of a distribution-focused founder or founding team versus a product-focused team? So I don't think I'm good at a whole lot, but one of the things I've always spent my career at is like the intersection of like product and marketing growth for like, you know, even when I was 20 years old, I built Facebook apps that reached millions of people. So that's always been my background at Teachable. I ran the growth team for, you know, until CEO stuff became too much. So that's always been my background. It's always been my bias for Ocho this time. I mean, what we're doing right now, right now, the numbers are just small. It's not that hard to grow. We can grow, you know, like we're at, you know, 15, 16,000 in monthly recurring revenue. So we add $4,000 in monthly recurring revenue. That's, you know, that's 25% month on month growth. So numbers are still pretty small. Right now we're able to grow largely just through uh, partnerships with creators, my own network. Twitter is a big source for us. So we're able to kind of like just brute force it for now. And that's fine for now. But what we're trying to see is, is the product itself bringing in, bringing in new people. Like what, what I'm waiting to see is like, is every successful happy customer bringing in their friends, which we're not at yet. And that's sort of the point I want to get to before dialing up paid and stuff. In a lot of ways, I'm basically a lot more patient. You know, like now it's it's 11 months in and I'm like, I'm fine if it takes us two years to get to a point of like the product working really, really well, and then we'll double down on it. I can tell just by some of these answers and even your reflection about whether or not you were the root cause or yep. if inevitably companies reach a stage that you are very self-aware. I guess that self-awareness yeah. has come from going through the highs and lows and probably reflection. So I want to ask you a question about about really what drives you using this self-awareness. Yeah. Uh, it said that at the end of the day, 
we all have a certain couple of core drivers that yep. really drive our daily yep. decisions. And I'll give you four. Yep. Money, power, pleasure, or fame. And typically, many of these or multiple of those yep. factors will be a driver. But if you really boil it down and ask why enough times, there's typically one of those, which is the largest driving force for daily decisions or what we do. So if I had to put you on the spot here, if you had to pick between money, power, pleasure, and fame, which of those four idols, if you will, is the major driver for you? I think it's undoubtedly at this point pleasure. Like it's the things that like, there's so many trade-offs in my life right now I will not make if it makes my life less valuable. Even something like the kind of culture I want to keep. Like if someone is going to be a great performer, but like I don't want to spend time with them every day, I'm not going to do it. Like even decisions like whether to build a company in person or not, I chose what adds most value to my life, which is being surrounded with people. I think initially money is a powerful motivator, but then, you know, check that box with Teachable. It literally does not make any difference to my life at this point. Uh, so it's not that. So I would say between those four, you know, it would be probably pleasure, but what it is that keeps me happy, what it is that keeps me motivated, the framework I have is like, I found four things make a big difference in my day-to-day -day happiness. One is like very simple, just spending time outdoors. Two is like physical motion, activity, exercise. Like, like you know, I feel most at peace when in motion. Third thing is like meaningful relationships. It's not about quantity of people, but just being able to like have a few relationships I can count on. And fourth is like work with purpose. And that was the one that was missing from my life. And that's sort of what led me to start this. If you could actually zoom out, I'm always fascinated about how people construct their days. And typically, yep. you know, the day starts yeah. when you wake up too. So I have to ask, I know people are curious, what does the morning routine look like? When you wake up in an ideal day, in this perfect day, designed or optimized for pleasure, yeah. what do you like to you do? Know, what does start the first with my cold like? plunge and athletic greens. No, I'm just kidding. I don't do any of that shit. <laughs> Mine is, it's pretty simple. I mean, like roughly like first thing I do is like I get outside. I typically always get coffee from outside because I like, like, like the activity of that. And I call my parents. I don't talk to them every day, but like typically that walk to coffee and back is when I will try and say hi to them. And then I'll work out. Workout is different every day, but workouts are typically the thing I like to do in the morning. Get to the office. Again, we have an office with a team I really like working with. So it's actually very enjoyable to go in and see the same people every single day. And then most evenings, because I live in New York City, like there's some social stuff happening kind of every evening. So I, yeah, I stay busy maybe five or six nights a week. I'm doing something. What type of structure or environment do you find yourself most productive in? And over the course of your career so far, how have you changed maybe the way you structure your environment or what you do to be most productive? I remember I tried after COVID happened and, you know, we were given flexibility to not go to the office. I tried the whole like digital nomad thing. It absolutely did not work for me. It was like impossible to actually to get deep shit done. Um, so I do find an office helps a lot. I find just like the forcing factor of being around people that care about the same problems be, to be very motivating to me personally. Some people can kind of work in a vacuum where they're motivated inherently. For me, like having people that share the same sense of purpose is super motivating. So that, that helps a lot. In terms of work, it's been so long since I've ever done deep work. Like I basically have no deep work. Like as a founder CEO, you're not really doing deep work. I mean, the last time I did deep work was when I like probably built the first version of the Teachable app, which was seven years ago. So right now it's it's largely interrupt driven, but I kind of lean into it with, you know, working in, I don't know, 60, 120 minute segments. And then I'll like have a call when I'll, you know, do while walking. Like I probably walk 20,000 steps a day. So I do a lot of my like 
a lot of my communication is when I'm walking. You maybe said something which you could say is a hot take, but yeah. definitely a divisive take, which is that, hey, can remote work versus in-person? But I think I like your candor around it, which is, hey, optimize for what you want and the optimize people around you Optimize for what you want. want, right? It also depends on your life. Like I bet if I, you know, had three children, I would like feel very differently. But, you know, being single, living in New York City, like, yeah, it's like fun to go into an office and be around people who are in a similar life stage as you. So I don't think one is better than the other. Like, like they're totally could come a time in my life from like, you know, remote work works better for me. What important truth do you believe in that many other people might not? This is a version of the contrarian question, but what, what do you believe that others just disagree with you on when it comes to startups? Well, I can start with like very tactical takes and then sort of zoom out. But very, very tactically, I think a lot of things when it comes to startups create the illusion of work and activity. And there are very few things that meaningfully move the dial. For instance, one of the bad, one of the hills I'm going to die on is most startups should not be A-B testing, right? Like I feel like every single product manager, every single startup goes through this phase of like, oh, let me like, you know, try to optimize the copy and like run, like it really doesn't matter. Like in the early days, you need to move the dial so significantly. It's not about getting a 10%, 20% improvement, you know, from somewhere. You have to like literally take shots from that are just much, much bigger in nature. Another thing is, I think there's no substitute to like forming deep relationships with your customers. Like I think all the companies I've known that have done very well, like even the teachable days, like the fact is we got to know our customers very well personally. And that was something we were able to scale up and ultimately differentiated us from the rest. What did that actually look like in practice meeting or getting to know a customer on a deep level versus a service level Zoom where you say hi for 15 minutes? So all of our customers at Teachable, we had a certain segment of customers that in turn were very important because they were creators and in their audience were hundreds of other future customers for us. So for people like that, we ended up just honestly just becoming friends with them, uh, which sounds sounds a little bit over the top, but no, we would like actually go out with them. We, they were family people. We knew their, their family. If there were people who like, like to go out, we like literally went to the bars with them. Like, you know, we were in very, very close with our customers. And I think when things got tough, that really made a difference in terms of who you could count on. And like those relationships just compounded in, in life. I mean, same with some of our investors, multiple people that were investors are now amongst my close friends since we've at this point had an eight, nine year relationship and kind of seen each person develop through that. You've spent some time now as a founder mm -hmm. and as an investor and now as a founder again. Yep. Having been in both seats, what would you say is the biggest misconception founders have about investors and then investors have about founders? So again, like I know I've been in both seats, but like I've just, I've always been a founder. Like I've never even like, I always feel kind of weird inside to self-identify as an investor. I guess I did invest. I mean, investing to me, and it's possible that again, like, you know, other investors will disagree, but it kind of felt like bullshit. Like it felt like, yes, it was fun. And it was rewarding. And it's like, it, you get to like see the future develop, but it's not a full-time job. Like it, maybe it's a full-time job if you're like, you know, 50 years old and kind of want to chill. As a founder, it's like not even remotely the same. You're just sitting around handing people money. Yes, you know, you're giving them advice and stuff, but you're not in the trenches. Like you're not doing, you know, it, it like it felt to me like you're doing maybe one to 2% of the work and you're it, you get more than one to two percent of the reward. So yeah, the whole trade-off felt kind of weird. I think a lot of investors, and I noticed this especially as an investor, need to be a little bit more humble. Like if you haven't actually done the job, it's very easy to kind of, you know, sit back and tell other people how they should be running something. So I think a lot of investors who have not been founders lack a little bit of empathy of like actually knowing what it's like to, to go through that. There's recently this poll that was asked, if you ask people what percentage 
of the population are you in when it comes to being a good driver? 93% of people will say they're in the top 50%. Yeah. So everyone overestimates how good they are at what they do. Yeah. I think in any profession, but let's even say in venture capital and investors, you'd probably say a similar distribution where more people than 50% think they're in the top half. As a investor or as a founder, multiple founder, what tactically are the things that the best investors do? From your experience or things you try to do? So I generally think most investors would be better off like wiring quickly, being very responsive and getting out of the way. Like I think that would already make you better than the median investor. Honestly, all of our investors at Teachable were awesome. But what they did is they basically let me run the company the way I wanted to when I needed something they were there for support. And yeah, they were most responsive when I needed them, but they were otherwise otherwise willing to stay out of the way. And to me, that was like super, super valuable. There's so many investors that try and be helpful, but it's just so hard with such limited context to be able to tell a company what to do or whatever. To wrap up, I do want to ask for some more tactical advice, but more from the personal side. Um, first thing is when it comes to relationships, what's the biggest piece of relationship advice you would give to your 20-year-old self? So I'm generally as a person, very conflict averse. And it's something that I've been like, I've gotten a lot better at, but just like understanding that sometimes the kindest thing you can do is to be not kind. And that's something that like, I'm still learning because I, I struggle with. I will like, honestly, just, you know, kind of like beat around the bush and not be very clear in communication. So that's, it's, it's advice that I'm, I'm sharing, but it's also advice I frequently like repeat to myself because it's something I've struggled with. I just like, whenever it's people I love, I, I hate, I like just avoid conflict and I kind of want to see everyone happy. And that, that word, that's a rough thing to have as a CEO where your job very often is, you know, trying to have the hard conversations. I learned of a concept actually recently, it's called the one call. But if you ask someone, Hey, what's the one call you need to make right now? everyone's like, oh crap, yeah, I know what I need to do. Like there's that one phone call you need to make. Yeah. And oftentimes it is for the best, but you put it off for reasons as in, I don't want to make the person feel bad or it's going to be a hard convo, but yep. ultimately what you fear most is what you most need to do. Yep. Have you improved at that? You said you're trying to improve or is there any, I hate using the word hack, but have there been any ways you've been able to improve or force yourself to have the, those convos? The hack has literally been like five, six, seven years of hard won lessons. Like so many of these things, I feel like you, like I do believe people get better at running companies and get better at most things because I've seen it myself. I mean, even like without, you know, consciously trying to improve, like you adapt and you learn just by basically experiencing, you know, 100 different variants of it over five years, your brain sort of pattern matches, okay, I did this and this went well. So honestly, the hack has been, yeah, just like, you know, real hard one experience. One way, at least in a professional context of reframing it is very often when you think you're being very, you're being, you don't want to be unkind to one person by sort of protecting them or not doing what you have to do, you're implicitly being unkind to everyone else. So it's just sometimes, you know, more apparent when you're like, oh, I don't want to have a hard conversation with this one person. You may not understand how it might be affecting everyone else. And by not having that conversation in, in your perception of yourself trying to be kind, you're actually being unkind to everyone else. Anytime there's something I don't want to do now, I tell myself, you don't have to, you get to. And that can apply for a really shitty situation at work where yep. a year or two ago, you wouldn't have imagined being in this spot. Now you're here, you get to yep. um, exercise, whatever it might be. Hey, you're able-bodied, yeah, you can absolutely. walk around, et cetera. So I love those types of reframings. The first time I met you is actually through a Twitter DM. 
Yeah. And I think we were first talking about LLCs, maybe had some questions yeah. about Teachable. And it started there and then ended up going to a conversation where chatted more about Doula, formerly Pack, and now we have the chance to work together. Yep. But when I looked back, I thought, why did I decide to send the DM in the first place? There's always that fear of hitting send, sending the message, what if someone doesn't respond? And now something I'm so bullish on because I see it every day when people yeah. are on the fence of starting a company is fast forwarding and thinking, what would I regret looking forward on my deathbed? And yeah. if you do that, it makes it very easy sometimes to think, yeah, I get a bonus coming up in a quarter, but then I'm just stuck on that handcuff or yeah. the, the, the hamster treadmill. I'm gonna try starting this business or writing this book, whatever it might be. Is there a time or a moment when you shot your shot and you had that asymmetric upside? Is there anything that jumps out? I remember for work, one of the, like back in the day, one of the moments that defined us as a company is we didn't, you know, we'd been around for a while. Company was still pretty small. We didn't have any marquee customers or creators. And I remember like on our list of people to partner with was this guy named Pat Flynn. He had like this massive, massive podcast, podcast at the time, Smart Passive Income. And I remember like, you know, trying to reach out a few times and nothing ever worked. Then I saw he was speaking at a conference in North Carolina. And I remember emailing him saying, hey, Pat, you know, I'm going to be at this conference, like would love to meet up. And it's probably the second or third attempt. And he finally replied. And of course, I wasn't actually I had no plans of going to this conference, right? The whole thing was just like me like giving it a shot. And as soon as you replied, I remember like bought a flight out the next day, didn't even buy a ticket to the conference, like literally flew to Charlotte for a coffee meeting at a Starbucks with Pat, flew back that afternoon for my friend and co-founder's like wedding. It was all the same day. Ended up closing him as a customer. He became one of our biggest partners. And like it was turned out to be a very, very pivotal moment for us. Oh yeah, I think uh, that might just be the new hack, if you will, yeah. or that might be the new yeah. trick that I have to try, but other founders yeah, have to try. Yeah, just do it. it tell, just tell partner. people you're going to conferences you're not really at. And then if they say yes, book a flight. What's the biggest thing you're looking forward to with Ocho in the next 10 years? In a lot of ways, it, it like with Teachable, I was a little bit angsty, right? I was like, I wanted to have this win. I wanted to like the company to go a certain way. With, with Ocho, I want this to be a company I can build for the rest of my life. And if it means like, you know, being more patient, year one, year two, year three, that's totally fine. So a lot of things here I'm just doing differently because I want this to be sort of a canvas for my life's work. So it, it, it does lead to like, in some ways, a relaxation of pressure. And also, I just think when you're a little bit older, having done this, you just get better at managing yourself and your emotions. So yeah, it's been it's been it's been great so far. Sometimes people say you should separate the work or the outcome from yourself. Do you think that you should separate them? Or do you think that the two are intertwined? Own it? Yep. Make the company the canvas? You feed the company the company? Yeah, I, I, I hate that shit. Or at least I don't think I am the right per like I like a lot of people are like, Oh, you want to have work-life balance or whatever. And I'm not saying, I don't even think I work particularly hard, but I like strive to integrate my work in life. Like to me, a good life is where I find, I struggle to be like, is this work? Is this my life? Like that is like, it's just what feels most natural to me. The idea of like creating these two separate parts that don't interact is like the most unnatural thing in the world. Like if I'm, if I'm, you know, playing a sport with a founder I invested in, is that, is that work? Is that life? I don't know. And that's the good part, right? That's how I want to live my life. That's a great way to wrap up. And for everyone listening, send the DM. We probably wouldn't be having this yeah. conversation if I didn't. And thanks to Sanankar. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Sweet. Thanks, man. Sure. It's fun. I didn't know the uh, Pat Flynn story. Oh yeah, it was sick.